How do you create negotiable futures that we all want to be part of? How do you transition from traditional strategic management thinking into community development thinking and community consultation? Is it important to ask the community openly about their preferred futures? And are all our projects just going to be asking about the next one to two to three years? It's a two-way process where we offer communities the opportunity to have real input and then we give them the transparency of saying how their input influenced the future or influenced our community consultations. And these projects ushered in long-term integrated planning. And I argue that those are so specific that we miss other issues. So a key metaphor or a poem that I use here to talk about this, because we think a key problem confronting humanity at this time in history is briefly described by St. Vincent Millat, who makes this claim, upon this gifted age, in its dark hour, rains from the sky a meteoric shower of facts. They lie unquestioned, uncombined. Wisdom enough to leech us of our ill is daily spun, but there exists no loom to weave it into fabric. So that's the poem. And the futurist mindset is aligned to this sort of internal logic that interactions needed between sectors to navigate that shower of facts or media storm. So without that interaction, we may see one-sidedness and limitations of a great many of those facts, and we may miss the inequality that becomes visible to us as polemics, as comparisons of worldviews in society. But there's no loom, meaning that we need a way to understand inequality and to weave polemics into a useful fabric that would carry our dreams for the fulfilment of deeper, more important issues. So futures thinking is that loom, and it's made for vision and strategy creation. That is Dr. Colin Russo, the Managing Director of Engaging Futures, who is our guest today. Welcome to FuturePod, Colin. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you for having me here. So, Colin, what is the Colin Russo story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Thanks. Great question, Peter. And I should say I'm an Australian futurist from Engaging Futures in Brisbane and I acknowledge the Indigenous people, the Turbul and Jagra peoples on whose land we meet and their elders past, present and emerging. And always give some credit to my mentors who helped me onto this journey, including the UNESCO Chair of Future Studies, Professor Sahail Iniatala and also Dr Ivana Lajovic and Dr Marcus Bassi at USC. So my story, I often speak about what a futurist does. And so most of my transformational learning talks are about futurist mindsets, about behaviours and frameworks that help leaders to shape the future. Being that there's no crystal ball, we almost have one with smartphones, but I haven't seen anyone predict the long-term future yet with a, a great degree of certainty. So using a smartphone, it's more in the category of emerging AI. It takes almost takes the jobs of human beings. Yeah. So for example, if I ask Siri, hey Siri, uh-huh. What is your definition of artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence means the theory and development of computer systems able to perform tasks normally requiring human intelligence, such as visual perception, speech recognition, decision-making, and translation between languages. So really what Siri is doing there is taking the job of a human being, Mm -hmm. and that's generally what we fear from our future. 
But then if we asked Siri that question slightly differently and said, hey, Siri, what is your definition of AI? I means the three-toed sloth. Do you want to hear the next one? So that clearly that's not the correct answer. It's correct only up to the point that you ask the question correctly and, of course, yeah. what is preloaded into artificial intelligence. So we're getting up to that stage where artificial intelligence is actually going to be more intelligent than human beings and, and starting to ask the questions that we would like answered, but we didn't know that we should ask. So I situate many of my discussions as part of a much larger global to local discussion about foresight, helping us to get ahead of VUCA, so the volatility and uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity. So subsequently, I discuss more than business as usual reproductions of the past. The practice for me is to teach people to conceptualise the possible and preferred futures with the aim of applying futures thinking and methods to their sectors to create preferred futures with more hopeful vision and strategy. And so there have been many sectors that I've worked and presented futures thinking keynotes in and workshops to, including the federal and international levels, even though my early learnings were in state and local governments. So I've helped the transformation of cities from Gold Coast to Geelong and from Redland City to Bullyshire Council, which is southwest of Queensland on the border between South Australia and uh, Victoria. And also the state and federal governments and international organisations such as UNESCO and OECD. So that's generally my background, having worked in state and local government with futures thinking. And I'm always asked the question, so what is the future in those <laughs> workshops? And it, it's simply the time after the past and the present, and it's bounded by the laws of physics. But what it holds for us is conceptual, and that's why it helps to have the methods and the tools for thinking and talking about the future that are yeah. multisensory and openness to the possibilities and that are used as part of navigable, relatable futures frameworks. Colin, I'm yes. curious, what's your earliest recollection of you starting to think this way? Because, I mean, I didn't imagine you just popped out of the womb fully formed and thinking this way. This is something that you developed over time. What do you think the early beginnings of that Colin Russo journey starting was? It's in those earliest thoughts when you start to meditate at home and think about what do I want to do for my right. future? What are my preferred futures? And then you think, okay, is meditation enough? Am I thinking, okay, this is the way I'd like the world to be. This is for my friends and family to have happy and healthy lives. But what tools are there to actually help me along that journey? How do we actually achieve that? And then how do I start to ask questions like that of my friends and ask them what their preferred futures are so that we can actually create the common ground needed to assess where we could work together on issues. So we use tools and frameworks that present different narratives. Academically, when you go to university, you learn that these are quantitative, where we try to predict the future, and qualitative, where we try to interpret the future. I actually studied in more of the social faculty. And so if you take a social focus or you would then need to add that to a constructive focus. How do you construct the future? How do you engage people around that focus? And that's included in the frameworks for futures thinking that you learn about. But we then have to link it all together to action the future. And that means providing the structure that the tools and the methods provide. And so I think it begins you know, in those early psychology questions that you form in your mind. If you're going to map and create an overview of the past and the present and the future, and ask that question, what is my preferred future? You generally come across your own past pessimisms. So when futurists think about the past, 
we learn that centuries-old practices still influence us today. So you go to university and you find out that the factory model of education with its conveyor belt to exams still exists instead of focusing on maybe employability for current emerging technologies and communication skills and life skills. And also all of those past practices of agricultural production, those regimes are set up causing too much meat protein in our diets and still all the problems of smoking and alcohol and sugar. Then there's the optimism. So you turn to the more favourable aspects of society and you think, okay, how do we balance that up? It's important to map the depth of past achievements in terms of human rights and health gains, ecological awareness, give ourselves an idea of what's worth keeping into and what's properly useful for the future. So there's this evaluation that we all go through. It's optimism and pessimism in, in every temporality of the past and the present and the future, but it's when too many problems happen that we all want to shape the underlying meaning of our systems and we challenge those past influences that aren't giving us both what we want and what we need as preferred futures. So this kind of model of optimism and pessimism and evaluation, it leads to exploration of the myths and the assumptions that later we can provide alternatives for. Were these uh, nascent ideas you had before you encountered the formal field of futures and foresight or were you travelling down another uh, epistemological framework through your training and then found foresight as a second set of thinking tools? Well, I always began with that question in mind, do we actually make the future better for ourselves and our right. families in terms of health and well-being and across a range of, sort of systems areas? And I always talk in terms of 10, the social and economic and legislative and environmental and cultural and technology industry or uh, international issues, organisations and genesis, meaning production of knowledge and also sustainability. Um, and of course, ask where are the tipping points and all of those? So my earliest recollections were going through university, my, my first degree, and thinking about social ecologies and business ecologies, because I always wanted to connect between government right. and communities. And I saw myself as trying to do something a little unique in that we didn't even have community consultation positions set up in those days. But I wanted to connect the ideas of communities with government to create better futures. And it took me a little while to get onto that track. But I was certainly learning about the social ecologies and business ecologies of networked solutions through my earliest studies. It took me a while to get into formal futures thinking, but those were the essential underpinnings. So when I eventually got to think more about the formal thinking, it helped me to learn more about past trends. So this is where futurists identify where we're already headed and using trends and projections, we create more hopeful trajectories for the future. And as I say, you take those trends out across the areas. So to take examples for today, for health and wellness, we're currently reducing early deaths and diseases and disabilities for which there are dailies or these DALY statistics. So these are the years lost at work to disease globally. And the dailies have decreased over the past 20 years for communicable diseases, but they've almost doubled for diabetes, so 80% increase between 2000 and 2020 over the last 20 years, and they've doubled 100% increase for Alzheimer's disease. And another trend is for the reduction of homelessness and the housing crisis of unaffordable prices and rents at the moment, which is caused globally by the Ukraine war and by global population growth. But also locally with 
increased demand of housing and decreased supply. So we're experiencing sea changes in Australia, meaning people are wanting less debt and anxiety in the southern states, and they want more space and time, and they can see cheaper prices, affordable prices in the northern states. And so they're shifting at an unprecedented rate to the coastal housing areas, and that's causing homelessness and crises. But of course, the larger problem is population growth. And it's an amazing time to talk to you about population growth because as of this week, 8 billion people on earth with 10 billion people, according to the United Nations, estimated to be here by the end of the century. So we've added 7 billion people in the last 200 years with 1 billion added in the last 12 years. But we're accelerating, and that but that trend of acceleration it will slow down. So, in terms of human advancement, this is what futurists do: we just create a little bit of a metaphor to understand the, the context. So, we're about eighty percent of the way through. If you took the metaphor of the campsite, we're about eighty percent of the way through setting up Camp Earth with what we know currently. Dad's on the roof setting up a satellite dish. Mum's outside and choosing between restocking the lake with fish or choosing whether to grow urban crops. The kids are experimenting out back with water-propelled rockets and the neighbours have been flooded and they're starting to move in. So using all the campers' knowledge around the campsite, our education of the area and knowledge of the area is still growing. And this is about what to do to make the most of the short time that we all have together, meaning in real life the full extent of our existing knowledge and capabilities can be developed a lot further based on existing knowledge. So at the moment, NASA is exploring Mars and Tesla is getting super heavy spaceships off the ground still. And scientists globally are still developing new fuel sources such as plasma and doctors are still developing the world's knowledge of vaccine capabilities. We've got a lot of knowledge that has to be developed yet. And our technologists are creating smart cities and internet of things capabilities. And in cities, while we're good at transporting people between all the capital cities, Melbourne and Perth, we aren't as good as getting people from work to home or to shops and to parks, mm. particularly through our peak hours. We slow down. People have to quadruple the time spent on the road. So we're good at some things, but we've still got a long way to go. So while we, we will gain another 20% of people by 2100, another 20% of the current population, we will also gain efficiencies through health and well-being. Men and women will live the same length of lives with better quality health, and those health gains will increase efficiencies in the workplace. And also in total, having another, say, 30% effective input from that's the 20% population alone, that increase plus, say, 10% efficiency gains from the new technologies, that will mean a reshaping of society where a universal basic income drives more startup innovators joined by people with more time to create preferred futures. And as artificial intelligence takes over more meaningless jobs from remote control chipping to warfare to waste disposal to mining to agriculture, what we'll see is a shift back to the commons production style of life, but also a massive shift into research and development jobs with more time to innovate. So further increasing the ecology of innovations exponentially, thereby bringing a further step change to many of our systems. And this will bring a further increase in these efficiencies. We'll become a more advanced world with perhaps 50% more total knowledge production and manufacturing production by the turn of the century. So the pace of change is set to double. We're actually going to be on a freeway of change. So while we may say that 
we're going to see more change in the next 10 years than the past 100, it's also feasible to say that by the end of the century, we'll see more change than in the last 3,000 years and at the fastest pace in history. The way you describe that certainly emergent future scenario through knowledge and technology, you began the interview with a acknowledgement of country and we live in land. So your campsite was actually traditional land somewhere in Australia. I wonder how does traditional knowledge, which is still alive because the culture is still alive, how does traditional knowledge also participate in creating preferred futures? Yeah, it should do. And absolutely it should do. So after mapping trends, what we ask, what is it that we're doing in the present to achieve the futures that we want? So continued change is the difference between now and other times in history requiring new forms of governance and teaching. And as said on our Engaging Futures website, we never really live in the future. We live between the present and the future. We're always engaging futures on a visioning journey of multiple possibilities. Working with people internationally over the last few years, I can tell you that globally governments are really thinking ahead, incorporating foresight, but then I have to think back to the transitions I've experienced here in Queensland, where firstly, to build community consultation policies with the state and local government levels through the Environmental Protection Act of Queensland in 1994. And Section 26 of that Act required us to consult the Australian Torres Strait Islander community and stakeholders around the state on policies such as air, noise, water, mines and waste. And you can't help but note the absolute inpouring of knowledge that you gain, and it's in the traditional form that is so closely linked to our ecology, so our environmental futures. People who are traditional custodians of the land have much closer connection to all of the water, food and, of course, waste systems. The, the idea there is that we engage people, including at peoples, to open co-creative possibilities. Now, so if you go on a great project like we're on with Bold Future, which is the city of Gold Coast, it's an example of long-term community plans delivered by councils, that for many Queensland councils started cities on the pathway to thinking ahead. But it's the engagement aspect, the community, because in, in 94 through to 2000, we didn't have any community consultation positions in government, in local governments. We had to actually think, okay, yes, it is important to consult Indigenous peoples. It is important to consult community groups because that builds your perspectives and worldviews. And it's always what I wanted to do from leaving university and thinking about my preferred futures. How do you create negotiable futures that we all want to be part of? And so we had to create those positions and slowly we introduced them. Okay, so the state government had them in, had one or two in place for national, for statewide policies, but local governments had to have new position descriptions right around Queensland and then all the way around Australia. And then we would network in Southeast Queensland and talk about how to improve. What do we mean do we, about community consultation? It's a two-way process where we op offer communities the opportunity to have real input. And then we give them the transparency of saying how their input influenced the future or influenced our community consultations. And today, you'll see on the City Council annual plan or annual report, the words that asking the community about their long-term views or their views of the future so that if they've got new ideas, they can share them with the council. But those early community consultation policies I was involved in setting up 
before I started on my futures journey, which was to take the Gold Coast from a city council, like many Queensland councils that started on this pathway to thinking ahead, gone with the ad hoc retrospective perspectives of the past. And these projects ushered in long-term integrated planning and, and the legacy is our SEQ regional plans and master plans. But I argue that those are so specific that we miss other issues, not having long-term plans that are open to all systemic issues of society and links to our governance plans. We need the long-term 10-year community plans to be still in place. So a key metaphor or a poem that I use here to talk about this, because we think a key problem confronting humanity at this time in history is briefly described by St. Vincent Millat, who makes this claim. Hear this poem. Upon this gifted age, in its dark hour, rains from the sky a meteoric shower of facts. They lie unquestioned, uncombined. Wisdom enough to leech us of our ill is daily spun, but there exists no loom to weave it into fabric. So that's the poem. And the futurist mindset is aligned to this sort of internal logic that interactions needed between sectors to navigate that shower of facts or media storm. So without that interaction, we may see one-sidedness and limitations of a great many of those facts, and we may miss the inequality that becomes visible to us as polemics, as comparisons of worldviews in society. But there's no loom, meaning that we need a way to understand inequality and to weave polemics into a useful fabric that would carry our dreams for the fulfilment of deeper, more important issues. So futures thinking is that loom, and it's made for vision and strategy creation. It's beautiful. I've been aware of your work for a long while and the work you do and how community consultation and the way you do futures and foresight is central to your practice. I wonder if you would mind just talking to listeners about the importance of doing community consultation in our futures work and also how you do it. Yeah, absolutely, Peter. Uh, thanks for the opportunity because... As I said, it's always been important to me to connect between government and community groups and also industry. And when I began, certainly around year 2000 through to 2003, we hadn't even at that stage connected up with the rest of the world. The internet was just coming into place. And so I set up from the city of Gold Coast, working from the CEO's office or the CEO on community consultation policy there, having set up policies in the state government on a international local government community consultation network. And that was for me to reach out to colleagues in Brisbane City Council, Logan City Council, Melbourne, Sydney City Councils, Perth City Councils, and network, and then take that networking to overseas, to London City Council, Edinburgh City Council in Scotland, to Auckland City Council in New Zealand, and then Quebec in Canada, and gather together some thoughts about where the world's practices of community consultation were just 22 years ago. And certainly Australians at that stage, as they are now, were leaders in community consultation. There was no question that the policies that were coming back were all asking similar questions around Australia and around the world. How do we consult communities better? And we all started on this huge learning curve and wave of knowledge about practices. What are the important community consultation methodologies? How do you transition from traditional strategic management thinking into community development thinking and community consultation? Is it important to ask the community about 
openly about their preferred futures? Um, and are all of our projects just going to be asking about the next one to two to three years? Because most projects focus on the electoral cycle, on the mm. next one to two to three years. And it wasn't until those massive new long-term planning processes came through around 2009 in Queensland, certainly around Australia at that time as well, so nine to 10 years later, that we started to think longer term. But you have to remember back in 2000, we all had paper surveys and community consultation meant going out into the communities and setting up in a town hall, using newspapers and local media, television press, to actually gather together people who were stakeholders and who were directly affected by the outcome of the community consultation process. So we had our directly affected community members that we would send a letter to and invite and talk. That might mean that the direct effect was about setting up a policy that affected a local park or playground. But for me, as a coordinator of community consultation across a city of 350,000 people at that stage, I was working across all directorates, meaning that I would work with our corporate plan engagements, our major city plan, our annual plan, but also the major visions, strategies and actions of the city council. So we got to think long-term for those major documents, but short-term for, say, community communities gathered around the widening of the local road, the undergrounding of the local telegraph lines to make them safe and give us all the amenity that we wanted. But, of course, then you had to use statistical validity rules. You had to survey people, anything that involved rates and expenses and have a confidence level for that survey and you would have to ask a certain number of people for it to be statistically valid. So in 2003, I wrote a paper around the CLA questioning methodology, which I then envisaged that we could start to use some futures methodologies in community consultation frameworks, thinking that the CLA layers are of litany systems, worldview and myth metaphor, and that where we came to directly affected community consultations, we could integrate some of this thinking and start layering back with the community's perceptions of their reality, the effect of a project upon them, what the potential effects would be across the litany systems worldview and with metaphor frameworks. Then I would address that in that document, uh, direct, using the methodology in certain committees, so high-level committee groups, in council meetings perhaps, but then along came Bold Future and we were able to apply apply CLA and a range of methods like Futures Triangle. So that is an important framework and part of my early thinking because in 1994, I began to work on my master's degree with Professor Tony Stevenson and Sahail Iniatella at QUT. And so that sort of started me on my early thinking about how does Futures Thinking open up questions beyond the first year, second year, third year of, of a project to long-term thinking and what are the strategic questions that we can use to take us out there, to take us into the possible futures rather than the predictable and known, you know, this is your A, B and C alternative futures and how do you think about that? those kinds of outcomes. So there's a big difference. And so around the world working with other councils, and working in the United States with Boston City Council, they were kind enough to put the early networking document up onto the American Psychological Association website for perpetuity because I think it was one of the earliest examples of any country reaching out to talk about community consultation globally and gather practices. And of course, later on in Queensland, 
that led to working with the local government association of Queensland because all of our community consultancy teams would meet in Brisbane City Council. Uh, then we met with the LGAQ to develop a good practice framework of community consultation standards and principles. And then I consulted with their senior officer around Queensland, 22 different councils to, to help develop that framework. Uh, and that started to standardise between all the councils in Queensland the community consultation frameworks and policies and practices that we see today. And after that, they developed an international local government or community engagement conference in Brisbane. And then long after that, the IAP2 was developed, the International Association for Public Participation. But it was from that early groundwork that we all started to get our thinking around standardisation of community consultation processes. And we have to think, does that word standardisation, does that lead to cookie cutter processes that are all unified or does that actually leave within councils the framework and ability to continue raw thinking and development of, of the methodological process? How do you reinvent community consultation such that you can make it your own, still feel confident that what you're doing is important and appropriate? And so the answer to me is that you need both. You need to be able to have a general framework to refer to, but you also need to make it your own and keep alive in you what we call your own divine spirit, your own ability to navigate. As I say, said earlier, my earliest hopes to connect government with community groups. Uh, and so I hope that's the legacy rather than the internationalisation, which was really set up initially to gather feedback and inform each other and exchange ideas and see how we were tracking. It wasn't intended ever to provide more than a guide. I think each council needs to be able to create and customise its local processes. So, in fact, to enact what it's all about, consult communities, consult internally, and formulate frameworks and policies that are relevant to local people, including Indigenous people, and that right through to the multiple cultures that we have. That's not just in terms of worldview culture, but also in terms of disciplinary and, of course, professional practice cultures. Are there particular uh, techniques or things that you have to do to really give people the encouragement that they will be listened to and that their ideas will be part of the thinking that goes in? Or do people just naturally assume that if you're running a consultation process, of course you're going to listen to what they say. This is about the area of both trust in government but also of social contract. And every council around Queensland and probably around Australia, having consulted further down south, that the um, social contract is very different in every council. And as a result of having your own international standard, your local political party election process of the mayor and the councillors, you gain different views on democratic principles of how to conduct governance. And although every council will tell you that its governance framework is the mayor and the councillors and the electoral cycle, there's much more to it than that. And the issue of trust has comes into this because councils have started to rely more on the digital feedback that they receive through Facebook and other forms forms of social media from Snapchat to what they can pick up from Instagram and other places, particularly LinkedIn. But an over-reliance on those social media forums will ground people down to a specific view 
and it won't necessarily create an evaluated, if we talk in terms of, say, diversity, inclusion, and equality, it might give you some diversity and some narrow sets of inclusion, but it might not necessarily create equality and it might not satisfy principles of validity or confidence, statistical validity in terms of community consultation feedback. So it's incredibly important that community consultation continue. And you will find that traditionally there's this division between Liberal Party governments and Labor Party governments. Labor Party has always consulted more broadly out through the the grassroots, if you like, and the Liberal Party has tended to consult the top stakeholders at that end of the hierarchy. So what we need is that moderated approach to be always available in our governance frameworks so that you can maximise the value of community thinking but also educate community and bring them along the journey. Thirdly, creating empowerment and agency for community so that they have a sense of that divine spirit not running out, not being not being turned off. And so we're always trying to keep that doorway open to communities and create the connection with our councils and thinking about preferred futures. So we've got to ensure that our macro frameworks, our macro policies and vision is family friendly and is community friendly. So if we just focused on industry or privatised organisations and the top end of town, we will miss the nurturing of families, the idea that we are all unique, we're all able to provide opportunities and use sort of matrix style of thinking, gather feedback from a crowdsourced framework. And what we need to be doing is opening community consultation to 24-hour feedback But we could use that CLA framework, and I write a little bit about this in my latest chapter in CLA 3.0, which was released last month, and it talks there about using CLA as a kind of a governance framework. So, yeah, there's many ways of thinking about methods and practices, but it really comes down to democratic governance frameworks and the will of the people to understand, and this has been my message since consultation policies were developed, is that we have to consciously, as I said before, we only got certain social gains in this country in a relatively near term. We've only picked up on the ideas of female voting and Indigenous voting and the freedom of speech in this country relatively not too that far back in the past. So we have to continue to keep open the idea that democratic governance can be improved. It's still in its infancy. There's still a lot more that we can do, even though we have the Internet of Things and we have smart city thinking, to actually frame what we do with futures thinking technologies or methods is to look at paradigmatic research frameworks. And that's whether it be the six pillars, and that's mapping and anticipation and timing and deepening and creating and transforming the future. But essentially it's about if you look across a past, present, future framework and think we need diversity, inclusion and equality in all of those, That leads us to epistemology and ontology and pedagogy by actually addressing these important issues um, in our thinking. We create that diversity in our outcomes, that openness to the future, and we create that depth and breadth and centricity that means we've got democratic thinking and not autocratic thinking. Thanks, Colin. No, I want to have a chat to Colin Russo person, a citizen of wherever, 
about the particular emerging futures around you that you're paying particular attention to and why? So what might those be? Okay. For me, a lot of what I'm doing in terms of shaping the futures is in terms of the action learnable question. Subsequently, we ask about views of the future, including the view of the future. So when I was workshopping futures at the Australian Federal Police in Canberra, they answered what Australian Federal Police fear most is a future of an isolated headquarters when we know that the importance of cyber security issues means that we should be asking everyone involved, everyone to take action when they see cyber security issues. So their answer to another question of alternative futures was, while they're excellent at cyber security, they will continue to diversify and use all available possibilities. We were discussing Darwin City Council's new cameras, the ability for facial recognition systems if needed, and that perhaps community consultation was needed before they were installed to help people understand that they would be used only for significant reasons, not recognition technology, as is used in other parts of the world. We know there's a feared future there for most police too, that their community mindset is used to identify criminals, but also predictively before crimes occur, which gives us both an upside and downside that we're identifying who is very angry in the community or very excited in the community or someone who's simply uh, drinking alcohol and looking sleepy, shouldn't be heading back to work. How do you use this facial recognition technology for community good, but not invade people's privacy? So all of those questions, those are important issues for today. For City of Gold Coast, their feared future was being seen as a sleepy holiday and fishing village. So their alternative is to be a modern, thriving tourism and business community. And it's because also doubling in size by 2050 is their main issue. And so they're going from 350,000 maybe to, to 550, 700,000 people into the future. So they want to see the financial exchange from that. But they saw that continued urban sprawl is a used future borrowed from the past, unsustainable, and a much better future is the one they have now that connects people in places using light rail through a new health and knowledge precinct to the hospital and community village created in time for the Commonwealth Games. So basically, you've got health and knowledge precinct connected by light rail to all the tourist precincts. And I've just worked for the Thompson Psychology Institute on the Sunshine Coast, and they have as their feared future the neurodiversity health system where children have limited access medical services, leaving them struggling and reaching out for help. And what they want is transformation that offers all school-aged children automatic free access to groundbreaking medical scans that predict their mental health futures. So this is this new area of brain fingerprinting that they have actually developed and can now predict the future of people's anxiety and also neuropsychology. And they can predict if someone's in the next three months or 12 months will have a problem in terms of their lifestyle or career. We always begin with those questions about what are the feared and the used futures in our organisations or sectors. And I think that leads us to that question about why people don't want to change if they've got all of these predictive technologies. And I always talk about the example of Finding Nemo, the Australian movie, and that taboo was to touch the boat to have the great adventure and to learn about what's outside of our playground or our neck of the woods. And a similar movie is Moana, uh, which has the plot of a blight that strikes her Pacific island and it kills the vegetation and uh, shrinks the fish catch. And so Moana asks, do we go beyond the reef? It's a 
her elders don't want her to leave the area. They want her living nearby. She says, look, we've got, to, we've got to leave the reef to solve the cause of our problems from outside the local frame of reference. And we ask the question, do we know how our stream fits with, within the whole cycle of its being? Do we go upstream and downstream of our sector to see what feeds it? And what struck me recently was hearing from the Prime Minister of Tuvalu and Cook Islands about how they are currently preparing for their islands, their homes, to be inundated by the end of the century. And that means that they are now shifting their identities online to create a digital community and community memory for all of those people as climate change takes over. So these are all examples of massive transformational shifts that we're all embarking on. And I think that we're all challenged from whether it's legislation or shifts in the global economy but it's also when national policy accelerates population growth too quickly and it has the outcomes that we fear. And there are all of these tipping points across all of our systems. So we fear at the moment emerging issues in digital home space, say the digital meta workplace, which has 7 million users, and it's disrupting the shape of the workplace and knowledge communities and turning universities into multiversities. So the metaverse will create a new space to conduct business and social events in three-dimensional virtual reality so we can work and live on the internet in one connected hyperspace. So a disruption in our emerging futures questions, investment-related housing, becoming decoupled from the market, transferring our investments to an encrypted digital twin of our Australian housing market. So this experience begun overseas already with virtual reality housing now able to be purchased and sold for large sums of money, at insane amounts of money, more in some cases than the actual physical price of that land. As with any blockchain-based exchange, the value is determined by scarcity and desirability. Um, there's a set amount of land and every couple of hours or so it's being bought or changes hands and that suggests that there's still plenty of momentum in that exchange. But there's no telling that what will happen to the market once the last plot of land is bought. So subsequently, Futurist asks, how much further online will our identities move? And I gave that example of the Cook Islands and Tuvalu. But so notwithstanding all of these moves, digital living may work with democratic ge geopolitics in place, but the future is still questionable and it's unknown because with autocratic governance cultures in place and structures in place, we don't know what that will do to the marketplace, like what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. These are unpredictable futures. So after the feared future, we navigate our preferred futures journey by asking what then are our assumptions that could be addressed by creating alternative strategies, and then which of these alternative strategies do we prefer? And you asked me what I do as a futurist or what am I thinking about, and one of the metaphors or analogies I use is the Star Trek II Wrath of Khan simulation. <laughs> and that's a simulation exercise conducted by their chief executive officers to interview applicants for leadership. So the CEOs use simulation exercises, including two blind, no-win outcomes. So they don't tell the participants as their selections based on a capacity to respond to losses, which is a good idea to test people how they can cope with success, but how do they cope with failure? But in the simulation, a Starfleet ship surrounded by warring Klingons, the Enterprise beams into the scenario, and then Captain James Kirk must decide between A and B, A, whether to save the crew of the Starfleet ship 
by firing on the Klingons, thereby revealing his own position in the Enterprise, destroying his crew and himself, which is the corollary, of course. Do you reveal your true intentions today in the organization and say, look, I'd like an alternative A, B or C? Do you reveal your position and potentially blow up yourself and your your staff? So you've got to be quite courageous in future thinking. And Or B, Captain Kirk could have departed using warp drives saving only his crew and himself and leaving that stranded Starfleet ship to its fate among the Klingons. And, of course, the corollary is to do you leave your fledgling idea alone and and leave it there for another five years and wonder about its fate? But Kirk would then have to explain himself, and as instead Kirk sneaks into the operating system before the test begins and he uploads a new ending to the computer scenario, a new preferred future in which he saves the Starfleet ship, its crew, and the Enterprise's team. So Kirk had transformed the underlying system. Then he rises to a position as commander of the Enterprise. What I do in workshops is to help people negotiate the alternatives that they could have taken. And community consultation is that important role that we have. But do we ask what role has community consultation in shaping the normal futures that we think about during the day in the organisation? Are we able to formulate a survey and ask our friends are we able to formulate a survey and ask managers or directors? Um, the other role plays will help us with our inner selves, such as the Saka game and personality profiles, so that we can observe real-time creation of alternative futures and identify what potentially could go right or wrong in real time. So if the warrior role, for example, has a gun in their hand, why on earth did they shoot a priest when they could have negotiated with a priest? So you can sort of action learning question weren't there better possibilities and they might say look we just thought we didn't we didn't have that op- that wasn't part of the rule book or we didn't have enough time to conceptualize that we just acted and so futures thinking and long-term strategy creation is always harder for people who just want to act they don't want to think outside the local neck of the woods and beyond the reef that they're living on um, futures thinking is always going to be harder until you create that training program and train the champions in your organization So for me in Australia, there's certainly a lot of VUCA ahead and there's less time for grand experiments with our world heritage and with encroaching on animal and bird species during land clearing that globally is a cause of COVID-19 and its future variations. So there's less time to understand whether the plastic waste in clandestine wars will impact us greatly or what effect a possible global fertility crisis might have on our populations. But on the positive side, on the horizon, there's this transition to renewable energy by investing in hydrogen and solar and wind and battery technology. And there's also quantum computing and CRISPR gene technology and nanotechnology and biotechnology and even Neuralink telepathy further out there. So emphatically, we need futures frameworks to combine all of the possibilities long-term into useful uh, guidelines for navigating the future and creating preferred futures. Do you want to just wrap this up for the listeners? Okay, so in summary, I'll give you some points that we focus on. And the first one is the knowledge of possibility rather than recreating the past if the past isn't working. Uh, Also, multi-polemic solutions rather than a choice between one thing or another beyond binary. And transformational thinking that does more than diagnose problems but anticipates them. Also, more than just predicting and projecting, we anticipate and we solve. We integrate across and between systems and sectors, the more relationships, more convergence of opinion about what we do. And we aim for less volatility because of changing political ideas or systems. 
and we kind of find like we create scenarios across a wider spectrum of possibilities and we work with the preferred futures. Great, Colin. Look, it's been great to catch up again. Thank you very much for taking some time out to have a chat with the FuturePod community. Thanks, Peter. Fantastic. My guest today was Colin Russo. His was a deep and extensive inquiry into and demonstration of engaging with communities to weave their hopes and dreams into our preferred futures. There is a lot to take from my conversation with Colin. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support the pod, then please check out our Patreon, which you'll find a link to on the website. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.